Tonight I'm going to talk about the noble footpath. Quite a complicated subject. The approach that I used in this retreat is oriented to daily life practice, as I've often said. And it is also based on the noble footpath, and we did both serenity and awareness. Serenity in the sense of Arahang and Tsukino, and then we did open awareness. The first part of open awareness is also still serenity when you don't investigate. You just touch and go. Free and easy, touch and go, or point and shoot, hit and run. And when your mind is composed, and by composure I mean when there are either no thoughts or the thoughts are spaced far apart, then you begin to incline the mind to verify the three characteristics and cause and conditioning. And that's when the second step of Vipassana begins, investigation. And you investigate by inclining the mind rather than doing intellectual or rational investigation. With the right view that sankharas are meant to be viewed in terms of anicca or impermanence, suffering and not-self, and inclining the mind to verify that to your own personal experience by paying attention to the subject, not so much to the objects. Although you can also see impermanence in the objects coming and going, but you cannot really see cause and conditioning for the objects. Don't talk about external objects far away like sounds, but even the sensations in the body as objects, you cannot really know their cause and condition. Why are you still sleepy today? Everything was well. I had a very nice sleep last night. I didn't eat too much, but still I'm sleepy. Why? You cannot find a cause and you cannot find a condition. Because the objects, not the subject. If it's a subject, then maybe you can find the answer. You can see the cause and conditioning. That's for serenity. And going on to clear awareness, which is my translation of Samajanya. Now, I will piece everything together. Because when I gave you guided Satipatthana meditation, I said that you just need to do open awareness, then everything is pao hai, pao Everything is inside there already. But I never explained. Some of you might still be wondering. Somebody was asking me, you said you want to talk about feelings, but I never touched anything about feelings. Whereas the four establishments of mindfulness include feelings. Yeah, body, feelings, mental states, and dhammas. I will be going through this tonight and I hope that it won't be too much for you to absorb and you can sleep well tonight. If not, never mind. Tomorrow, no interview. <laughs> you are all familiar with an noble footpath. Right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right composure. This noble footpath is usually classified into three parts, which is the Panya, wisdom part, and then we have the Sila, or morality part, and you have the Samadhi, or composure part. There are two aspects of Panya. One is intellectual knowledge, or basic information. That also comes from the Panya. 
And of course, the other higher end of Panya is experiential, insightful understanding. Now we will go on to see the right view. I talked about right view the other day. It's belief in causality. And then we have personal verification of causality and understanding of the Four Noble Truths. You see what are the Four Noble Truths down there? It is suffering, cause of suffering, succession of suffering, and the way to cease suffering. I've already talked about causality the other day. The initial part of Panya is actually belief. It's only a view. Just like the first step of Vipassana practice is to have the right view. How to view Sankaras. There's just a view. It's just an intellectual acceptance of what the Buddha said. Then the second part is to investigate through personal verification of this view that you have accepted. This initial view. We say everything is impermanent, suffering and not-self, sankharas are all products of cause and conditioning. That is only the theory. Is it really true? Now you have to verify it through your own personal experience. And the way that I teach is to compose yourself first and then you incline your mind to verify this. Although, as Clarence pointed out yesterday, there's this Tatiya Samadhi Sutta where the Buddha talks about the four types of individuals. And the second individual is a special one who can get Vipassana without Samatha. But these are exceptional creatures. We are dealing more with normal people. You all do it the normal way. You do the composure first and then after that you do Vipassana, investigation. I also pointed out the other day when I talked about right view that the Four Noble Truths is also cause and effect. I said the cause for the First Noble Truth is the Second Noble Truth. And the cause for the Third Noble Truth is the Fourth Noble Truth. It's also all about causality. In the first sermon, the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, the discourse on the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma, the Buddha talked about the Four Noble Truths. And he said that the First Noble Truth has to be fully understood. The Second Noble Truth has to be abandoned then the third noble truth has to be realized and the fourth noble truth has to be developed. This theme sounds a bit strange when you say in English you abandon the truth. You cannot abandon the truth. But actually, the second noble truth is craving. You abandon craving. The first noble truth is suffering. And you fully understand suffering. I also said the other day that there are three types of suffering. One is a very obvious dukkha dukkha, painful suffering. And then we have viparinama dukkha, which is actually pleasant feelings or pleasant experiences, which are experienced with attachment and clinging. Everybody has pleasant experiences, including arahants. But when arahants experience pleasantness, they don't have attachment. They have no clinging. For them, there is no Viparinama Dukkha. Well, for worldlings who experience pleasantness, 
pleasurable feelings, pleasurable sensations, happy experiences, there is clinging involved, there is attachment. And because of that, when these feelings, this pleasure, all no longer experienceable, no longer recreatable, no longer repeatable, then there is a yearning, there is a longing that leads to suffering. And this is particularly true, for example, in a relationship. You had a very good relationship with your partner, and then somehow your relationship soured, and then you broke out. And then sometimes you still remember the good old times that you had when you first were courting one another. And then you try to want to get back all those nice experiences. But it's impossible because conditions have changed. And because you cannot get back all those pleasant experiences you had in the past, you suffer, you hanker after them. Hanker after something which is impossible to recreate. So that is Viparinama, Dukkha. At the moment that Sukha or pleasantness or happiness is experienced with attachment, that is Viparinama, Dukkha. It will transform into Dukkha eventually. When that passes away and you cannot get it back. That's the meaning of Viparinama Dukkha. It is another name for Sukha that is experienced with attachment and clinging. And this applies to all rulings, to everyone who is not enlightened. Whatever food that you eat is nice and delicious, you do so, you enjoy it with attachment and clinging. But then, if you are a Vipassana meditator, or you have enough knowledge and experience, you could pre-program your mind. Okay, I enjoy it now. I may not get it again later. At least that helps to prepare you not to be so attached. But memories are there. As you have seen, memories are beyond your control. They will just arise. Even though you cycle yourself and say, don't be attached, next time you see something similar like that on the table, your mind will connect to that old experience and you think that what you see on the table will taste like that because it looks the same. But when you eat it, it may not be. This is Viparinama Dukkha. The last one is Sankhara Dukkha. Sankhara Dukkha is the suffering of Sankharas. As we have seen, Sankharas are all products of causes and conditions. Whatever arises due to cause and condition is a Sankhara. And all Sankharas exhibit these three characteristics of impermanence, suffering and not-self. Now, you may see impermanence. I think a lot of people can see impermanence, particularly of the mind. It's so very obvious. Your mind changes so often. Thoughts come and go. You are very fickle. One moment you like this, one moment you like that. Even mindfulness is not permanent. One time is there, one is no longer there. Even when you try to locate the place where your mind occurs, sometimes you can get it, sometimes you cannot get it, sometimes your open awareness is free and easy, sometimes it won't come at all. Everything is permanent, you know it. And you know also, it's suffering to try to control the mind when it's restless, you cannot control. When it's sleepy also, it's suffering because you have no control. But that is still Dukkha Dukkha. Sankhara Dukkha is the incessant arising and passing away of all these things. And no one can put a stop to them. And they are products of cause and conditioning. If you see that closely enough, continuously enough, then you begin to understand what is to come. 
to say that well, there's still so much pleasure in the world. There's still a lot more pleasure than suffering. That is because you have not seen Sankara Dukkha. <laughs> you have seen a lot of Viparinama Dukkha. You have seen a lot of pleasurable feelings and experiences that on the surface. And you think that they are pleasurable and you enjoy them with attachment. Next time when you are not there, then you will suffer. Actually, even that Viparinama Dukkha, that pleasant feeling that one is experiencing, even the rapture of meditation, the contentment of meditation, the happiness of having a thought-free state, that is also impermanent. That also won't last. Now, if your mindfulness and samadhi is strong enough, when you do experience these things in your meditation, you will see that even that that rapture, that happiness, that nice feeling, you will also see that it is arising and passing away from moment to moment. And that there are causes and conditions behind it. You cannot forever maintain that state. And the moment you get excited, you want to hold on to it, you will go away. And then you are very full of expectations, you enjoy it so much, you want to try harder next sitting. 100% you won't get it. <laughs> when you do so with so much clinging and expectation, that's the wrong effort. The Buddha says, suffering has to be experienced, completely understood, which means to say, all these three forms of suffering, when you encounter them, you should not try to avoid them, but try to face them, confront them with understanding. But it's easier said than done. And a very good example is when you're sitting in meditation and then the painful sensations become more and more obvious. And I tell you, well, you don't pay attention to them. You just put them in the background and then you're aware of other senses. Sometimes you will recede to the background. Eventually, everybody has his own threshold. When you reach your threshold, no matter what you do, it will go away. And then how are you going to confront suffering? You cannot. You still got to give up. You got to move. You got to change. And people who suffer from depression, from various sorts of negative feelings in the mind, sadness, depression, anger, when they are overwhelmed, they cannot confront. In order to really understand suffering, what you need to do is you have to develop the last one. The fourth noble truth, which is the noble of a path. When you confront physical suffering, you need to have sufficient samadhi before you can attend to it. I'm sure that many of you would have experienced it. Sometimes when your composure is good, then you notice that there's some excruciating pain going on somewhere in your body, but yet you're still able to step back and separate the pain from the observer. So at that point of time, the mind is not suffering. The body is suffering, but the mind is not suffering. The bodily suffering is just another object, just like the sound of the bird, just like the sound of other things outside. It doesn't really affect you. It's separate. But still, you need to have compassion on the body. Although it doesn't affect your mind, it will affect you physiologically. You get up, you might be lamed for life. (laughs) 
some yogis experience that because their meditation teachers tell them it's okay, nobody has died of pain during meditation. You just bear with it, they bore with it, and then eventually they were maimed. You have to use your discretion. Your body has its own threshold. When it reaches its threshold, then you have to let go. But before it reaches its threshold, it depends on how far you can go. If your mind becomes more and more composed, then scientists have already proven that when that happens, when samadhi is reached, then I think the body produces a certain type of biochemical which is equivalent to morphine. They call it endorphin. It is the experience of yogis who do pure samatha. For example, there was one yogi from Nepal way back in 1980s when I was in Masi Meditation Center in Yangon and I was a translator helping them, translating Sadhu Pandita's instructions to them. They were practicing this Visuddhimagga absorption jhana. And this Nepali yogi had very good samadhi. He could go into absorption samadhi, jhana, and all his physical feelings would just disappear. He's just absorbed into his meditation object, his kasina, or his Brahma Vihara, whatever he's doing. And then there will be lots of mosquito bites. He wouldn't feel them during his jhana. But when he gets up, then the whole body eats. <laughs> the body is not immortal. Even though your mind doesn't feel it, pain is a self-defense for your body. When there is pain, your body is telling you better do something or you're going to get into trouble. You have to take action. You cannot just avoid it. You have to use your discretion to how far you can push and how much compassion you need to have for your body. The Buddha said that the cause of suffering is craving. Craving is an English translation of the Pali word tanha. Tanha literally means thirst. When you're really thirsty, you just want water to quench your thirst. The same thing, when you want something really very badly, it's just that you are very thirsty. You are just waiting to get hold of water to quench your thirst. And the cause of suffering is this tanha. The word tanha is actually an extreme form. It could be actually any form of loba. Tanha is a form of loba, is an extreme form of loba. But if you have any attachments, any clinging, any desire, and you don't fulfill that, of course there will be disappointment. Everybody would know about this. In fact, suffering is defined in various ways, and one of them is not getting what you want. Talking about the definition of suffering, in several suttas, including the Mahasadipatana Sutta, so suffering defined in the first sutta, the discourse on the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma. There the Buddha says, birth is suffering, old age is suffering, sickness is suffering, death or dying is suffering, association with those you don't love, is suffering, separation from those you love, or whatever you love is suffering, not getting what you want is suffering. And in brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. The first few 
They are either Dukkha Dukkha or Vipadinama Dukkha. But the last one, the five aggregates, that is Sankara Dukkha. The first few that were mentioned before the five aggregates are the sort of suffering that everybody knows. You don't need the Samasambuddha to tell you that. It's only the last Sankara Dukkha that you need the Samasambuddha to tell you that. For most people in this world, putting aside physical suffering, bodily suffering, because that could be due to many other factors, which may not always be linked to desire. It could be due to karmic causes of the past that you have to suffer physically. A lot of our mental suffering is caused by clinging, desire, attachment, wanting, and craving. Since in our modern era, life is so comfortable compared to 100 years ago, we have got so much material comfort and so much material convenience. Although physical suffering has lessened, mental suffering has increased. In fact, depression is one of the very fast-increasing ailments in modern society. Even though you have a lot of material comforts, you still make yourself sick and miserable to your mind. Many physical ailments are also psychosomatic in nature. Although medicine has taken strides in being able to cure people and prevent old age and lengthen the lifespan of humans. That's on the physical level. But humans still have short lives because of their psychosomatic diseases. Some of these are also related to, many of these in fact are related to the cause of suffering. Attachment, clinging, Desire. I'll give you one very good example. In Penang, there's one health practitioner who is sort of a homeopathy and Chinese TCM plus Ayurveda and all combined together is an alternative health practitioner. She has a clinic. She opens it with sophisticated instruments from Germany. uh, Alternative medicine. And her mother loves to eat chakwitya. And she has got a heart problem, very high cholesterol. So the daughter asked her mother, Mama, you shouldn't eat this chakwitya. It will boost up your cholesterol, your fat and all. It will worsen your heart situation. And he said, Nasi wa chakwitya The attachment is so strong, you know that it's not good for your health, and yet you still cannot cut away the attachment. Another good example is Cigarette. On cigarette packages, you've got all these nasty Asuba photos of people suffering from lung disease, like cancer and all that. But smokers uh, don't care. They still buy and they still smoke. <laughs> desire is so strong. They're all Buddhists, you know desire is a cause of suffering. But you still got a whole lot of desires. The best teacher is what? Suffer more. And every time you suffer, you ask yourself, why? 
You suffer, you ask yourself why. And if you ask yourself why, and then you find out that, well, it is because of some craving, some desire, some attachment, some clinging. Notice it. If you cannot cut, still not wise enough to cut, okay, never mind. You suffer, you see the connection. Then do again. Desire, suffer, cannot get what you want, you suffer. So you do that again and again with mindfulness and clear awareness. Then one fine day, Jai Si Lao. You see something like Maggie Tong now. <laughs> so that's how you practice through your own personal experience. No point somebody telling you about it. You only understand intellectually, but there's no experiential understanding. Experience is everything. But the theory is there, you understand the theory, you put it into practice. And that's how I did before I became a monk. Even before I started to learn meditation, I just knew about the Four Noble Truths and I just put it into practice in my daily life. Whenever I felt disappointed, frustrated, angry, upset, I just asked myself why. And I found it. The reason is attachment. Usually attachment to what? Expectations. Hopes. Aspirations. Beliefs. Views. All these things cause suffering. So I was really doing introspective mindfulness even before I knew anything about meditation. And that was enough to make me drop out and become a monk until now. Now 40 years already. I think it worked. I never attended any retreat at that time. I was just watching my own mind. Maybe it was a past life thing enough to be able to do that without even any guidance. And then when I got into Malaysian Buddhist Meditation Center, they were doing this Masi thing, you must watch the rising and falling. They say, oh, you don't know, you're thinking too much. Come here, watch the rising and falling. All my introspective mindfulness went down the drain for many, many years. It was only later when I met Saro Tejini, that was back in 2006, Introduced to me by Asma Kumara. He went there first and he told me about him. So I went to see him. Actually, he came to SBS first for his own personal retreat. And then I went there to his center for about a month. And I found that what he was teaching was basically what I was doing. Although his style is a bit different, but I was so encouraged that I was not really a dropout in doing introspective mindfulness. At least there's a teacher there who is also doing the same thing. And he said that he had learned it from his teacher, who is Sayumin Sayaraji, and who also came from the Mahasi lineage. It's just that later on he developed his own path of meditation. Understanding these four noble truths is part of right view, the intellectual or preliminary right view. But you can make use of this right view and apply it in your daily life. Here, I've already taught you how to do open awareness to compose your mind. I've already told you how to incline the mind to look back at the subject. Whenever you suffer, you suffer with mindfulness and clear awareness. Every time you suffer, ask yourself why. You will know it is invariably it is attachment to something. Every time you suffer, then you ask yourself why, and then is it really worth it? So next time that this thing happens again, then you'll be wiser and not follow your desires. That suffering of suffering will come only when you understand fully that the cause of your suffering is attachment, craving, desire, clinging. The moment you understand it, then the clinging will be abandoned. And when that clinging is abandoned, then suffering ceases. But in order to understand fully 
the cause of suffering fully in the sense of experientially, insightfully. You need to develop the noble effort path. That's what you have been doing. That's why some of you here have had issues surfacing in the course of meditation. And you have been applying this technique that I taught you. If it's a long-standing issue or something unpleasant that arises in you and you really can't understand, it has been with you for some time, you don't know what it is. But you compose your mind and then you ask the question, why? What's the root cause? And then you just put it aside and you come back to just do open awareness. And then the answer will come. Not necessarily immediately when you're doing something else. It will hit you and then suddenly that thing dissipates and disappears, evaporates. That is a cessation of suffering. You realize that it is due to clinging on to this past experience that you had in the past. It's probably a past traumatic experience of something that was done a very long time ago, usually during childhood, when we are so impressionable. This is very deeply embedded in our subconscious, which we cannot perceive now with our normal consciousness. It's only when you attain samadhi and you're doing mindfulness practice, these things can be accessed and undone through wisdom. That's why in order to really reach the cessation of suffering, you have to walk the noble, beautiful path. And then when you fully understand the suffering and its cause, then automatically the cause will be abandoned and the suffering will cease. That's why this noble full path actually goes one big round. It starts with right view as a preliminary. And then you go through all this and then towards the end, you have right samadhi, right composure. When the mind is composed, then you get another sort of right view that is experiential right view that comes to insightful, intuitive understanding using the proper method of vipassana in the three steps, how to view sankharas, how to investigate sankharas, and how to distinctly see sankharas. Now let's go on to right thought. Right thought is usually defined as thoughts of renouncing. We have right thought here, and here it says renouncing sense pleasures. Right thought of non-ill will and of non-cruelty. Now, because you are on retreat, then it's easy for you to have right thought because you are observing the eight precepts and you are also following the social norms. You're not supposed to have access to your handphones. And But when you go back to the world, it's a different story. You have full access to your handphones. And you have also full access to all forms of entertainment. It's not so easy to practice because you'll be assailed by all these objects which are craving for your attention and drawing a lot of energy away. Particularly nowadays with the cell phones, whenever people get bored, they don't look at their own minds anymore. Whenever they get bored, they just open up their handphones and check their email, check their Facebook, look at their messages and all that. These are all distractions which will not give you right thought. So this doesn't qualify. 
I thought of non-ill will. Non-ill will, here, the positive part of it is loving kindness. Ill will here is something which is related to being angry with somebody, not only somebody, even yourself. Let's say you are very unforgiving and you don't forgive yourself for having done something unskillful in the past. That is also thought of evil. You don't forgive yourself. That's why right from the beginning you have this forgiveness passage where you forgive yourself whatever you have done. And if you understand cause and conditioning deeply enough, you will know that actually there's no one to forgive. Because all the causes and conditions, whatever happened in the past, happened because of ignorance. And now you are wiser a bit. You can see there was something wrong. But you cannot undo it. The best that you can do is to redeem yourself. Or to resolve not to do such a thing again in the future. That's all. You cannot undo it. No point regretting. No point having any remorse. So if you're having remorse, you're regretting, that's a sort of ill will to yourself. What more to say when you have ill will towards other people, when you blame them for certain things that happen not to your liking. Then the next one is uh, cruelty. Cruelty is harming people. The opposite of cruelty is compassion. If you have no thoughts of cruelty, of harming anyone, even an insect or a leech or what that comes to bite you, or the ants that bite you when you're asleep at night, you don't have any thoughts of wanting to harm them because they harm you. This requires loving kindness and compassion and also patience. This is right thought. So after right thought, we have right speech. Right speech is what you have already been doing, is refraining from lying, refraining from divisive speech, from harsh speech, from useless talk. You are supposed to maintain noble silence. This is easily fulfilled. And when you go back to the world, it's a different story. Then we talk about right action. Right action means not taking life, not taking what is not given, not committing sexual misconduct. All these are also fulfilled when you are on retreat because you are on eight precept. Then we talk about right livelihood. Right livelihood is something a bit strange because in the suttas it says that the disciple of the noble one abandons wrong livelihood and undertakes or engages in right livelihood. Full stop. Not much you can learn from that. But in other suttas you find that right livelihood means not doing anything that is harmful. For example, not trading in arms, not trading in drugs or things like that that can harm people. Or engaging in occupation that would entail breaking your precepts. And a lot of businessmen will say, I can observe only four precepts, cannot observe five. Because they cannot keep the fourth precept. It seems that all these are required because somebody also mentioned earlier, in fact, the Buddha also mentioned, what is the purpose of morality? What is the purpose of ethical behavior? The purpose of trying to be ethical, trying to maintain a good morality, is for the sake of non-remorse. 
what happens is when your mind becomes composed, then you begin to see things according to reality. Whatever wrong that you did in the past, which you denied, when you are in samadhi and these thoughts arise, you cannot deny them. You can see them for what they are, that it was wrong, it was unskillful, you shouldn't have done that, and that's when remorse will occur. And that remorse is hindrance to practice. That's why, if you want to have a good practice, then you prepare yourself first. Be as pure as you can morally, so that when you practice, there will be much less of this. Because before you became a Buddhist, when you were young, you could have done a lot of bad things. Too bad. So in the course of meditation, these things might arise. And you have to confront them. But try to minimize them. Once you are already on the path, then you should try to live a moral life so that when you really practice, when your mind becomes composed and all these memories arise, then you will not have to suffer unnecessarily. More than what is necessary. Then we come to the next one, which is right effort. Four aspects of right effort. Two are connected with the unwholesome, and two connected with the wholesome. When it comes to unwholesome things, you are supposed to abandon them when they arise. The moment you realize that they are there, you should abandon them. Now, if they have not yet arisen, then you should try to prevent them from arising. That is right effort. That is the first part connected with unwholesome mental states, unwholesome dhamma. The second pair is connected with wholesome dhamma. If the wholesome dhamma has not arisen, then you should try to arouse them. And once it has arisen, then you should try to maintain, develop it to fulfillment, to completion. Right effort is very important because... You might have mindfulness. I'm not talking about right mindfulness yet. You just have mindfulness in the sense that you're able to look back at what has happened. And often, you may be mindful that you have greed, you have desire, you're angry. But there's no right effort. You don't curtail it. You follow it. You're angry, you know that there's unwholesome state. You should not pursue it. You should curtail it immediately. But because you are not developed enough, then you flare up, then you say something, or you show a scowl, you show a long face. You've gone beyond the first occurrence of anger. These are already expressions of anger. This right effort is not there. If it's right effort, then you would immediately abandon it. Now, it may not have arisen, but you know that For example, you know that durian makes you very sleepy after you eat it. But you love durian. And so, what do you do? You try to avoid When you smell durian anywhere around, you better go somewhere else. It's just like people who want to give out smoking. If they want to give out smoking, they cannot go and socialize with their smoker kakis, their smoker friends. You go near them, they smell the smoke, they offer you a whole pack to get you back into the group. You have to avoid them. And you have to make sure that you don't just throw your cigarette into the rubbish bin because the moment you have craving, you go there and pick it up and smoke it again. You have to get it out of it somewhere, burn it, destroy it, dispose of it. That is prevention. 
So if you feel that there are certain deformities in you which you cannot control when they arise, then you should know the cause and condition for their arising so that you can prevent them from arising. That's why here is prevention. Uh, so you don't read. And there's also prevention because once you read, then the mind will start to proliferate. Then you might have doubts about what I'm teaching you. But the, you know, the book says that like that. You say that like that. Now which one do I listen to? It will make you confused. You cannot meditate. You can read later. After you leave this place, you can read as much as you want and get as confused as you want. That's not my business. <laughs> this is right effort for unwholesome mental states. You are still lay people. When you go back to the world, your job is to enjoy the pleasures of the senses. How to follow this noble evil path? <laughs> By definition, a lay person is one who enjoys the pleasures of the senses. That's why you need to come for a retreat. During the Buddhist time, they observe eight precepts every week in the full of Bosutta days and the half of Bosutta days. In the old days, they used to do that. Just part of the training because otherwise, you're already lost in sensual pleasures. Another thing is to arouse wholesome mental states that have not yet arisen. And what we have been doing here is to uh, arouse all these wholesome mental states, to maintain them and to develop them to fulfillment. If your precepts are not yet impeccable, then you should try to improve on them. If your mindfulness is still not very well established, you should try to improve on them when you go back home. A lot of people say, oh, I've got no time to practice because we're back in the world, we have to relate with people, we have to talk, and people that we relate to are not practitioners, they might be very aggressive, and then that upsets us, our composure, and so forth. These are all excuses. I mean, that's a good testing ground to see how much you have learned in a retreat. Because you come on a retreat to charge your battery, battery charge already must use, you can't just keep it in the cupboard. You go and test first and see how well charged you are. If not charged enough, come back again. Or you can charge yourself temporarily. You go to the toilet, you can charge. You take a shower, you can charge. You're walking to your MRT, you can charge. You're sitting in the MRT, going to your destination, you can charge. You see, there are a lot of times you can charge. You don't have to become a slave of your unproductive thoughts. With the practice of mindfulness and clear awareness, you'll be able to catch your thoughts when they arise. You can catch your intents. When you catch your intentions, urges, and when they arise, then you have to use the bar test, the worldly bar test, to process and see whether it's worth pursuing or not. I'm not asking you to be thoughtless when you're in the world. Of course, you have to think. But then you have to be selective of what you think. to Conserve your energy. And to make good use of a time to practice mindfulness, right mindfulness. If you travel a lot in um, public transport, that's really a good opportunity for you to practice mindfulness. Look at the subject. You're sitting there with the eyes open, you're looking at people coming in and going out, there will always be comments about people. You see how these comments arise? They are due to cause and conditioning. You don't have to blame yourself. Even if you criticize somebody, but you don't proliferate it, at the moment you understand or see that a comment or a judgment has arisen, then immediately look at it in terms of cause and condition. How did that arise? What is the conditioning? Why do I have to think that way? Why do I have to judge this person this way? 
And look at it as not mine, not me, not myself. It's a product of cause and condition. That's how you can make use of all these things that you could have trash as organic fertilizer. Grist for the mill. That's what you do whenever you have the chance not to get involved in unproductive thinking, to open awareness, try to verify the three characteristics and cause and condition. Now, right mindfulness. I've told you about mindfulness. I've got the four hours of mindfulness. And I said that earlier on, I also told you there is right mindfulness, there's wrong mindfulness, there's neither right nor wrong mindfulness. Neither right nor wrong mindfulness is worldly mindfulness that's not connected with the spiritual path. Right mindfulness is a spiritual mindfulness that will lead you to Nibbana liberation. Wrong mindfulness is mindfulness that will not lead you there. It leads you somewhere else. It's a spiritual practice, application of mindfulness in a spiritual practice, but it's not something that will lead you to the end of suffering. Right mindfulness is invariably defined in the suttas as the four establishments of mindfulness. Except perhaps in one sutta, in the Mahajatari Sika Sutta in the Majimanikaya, where right mindfulness is defined as remembering the right view, remembering how to put right effort into practice, and remembering how to observe the precepts. But in other suttas, it is invariably defined as the four establishments of mindfulness, which are, the first one, contemplation of the body. Second is contemplation of feelings. Third is contemplation of mental states. And the fourth is contemplation of dhammas. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the Satipatthana Sutta, or the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, where you have got 14 exercises for the first establishment of mindfulness. Many modern scholars have come to the conclusion that these two suttas, the Mahasatipatthana Sutta in the Diganikaya and the Satipatthana Sutta in the Majimanikaya are actually a composite. It's a composite in the sense that it's made up of different suttas from different places. If you look at the connected discourses of the Buddha, Sanyutta Nikaya, there's one chapter that's called Satipatthana Sangyutta. There's discourses connected with the Satipatthana. And in those discourses, nothing is mentioned about these 14 exercises. Very strange. When you look at this Satipatthana in the stock opening phrase where the Buddha says, what are the four Satipatthanas? And then the Buddha will go on to say here, among dwells contemplating the body in the body, ardent, clearly aware and mindful, having subdued longing and dejection in regard to the world. And it goes on to the next one, feelings and then to mental states and the Dhamma. That's all. There are no other details involved. When you talk about the body, we usually, when you're doing open awareness and you're talking about the body, usually refer to the five senses. 
the sensations in the body as well as uh, what you see, hear, smell and taste. So that's the physical part of it. And then the mental part of it, uh, the feelings is when you experience something through your senses according to the Abhidhamma. Whatever you experience through the eye, the ears, and the nose, and the tongue are all neutral feelings. Whatever you experience to the body, the physical body sensations, they are either comfortable or uncomfortable. Sukha or dukkha. If it's neutral, that means it's sukha. It's comfortable. If it's neutral, it's comfortable. If it's neither neutral nor comfortable, then it must be uncomfortable. So they are either one or the other. Either comfortable or not comfortable. But the other four senses are all neutral. Let's say you were doing panoramic awareness. I was posing this question at the time. I said, when you're doing panoramic awareness and you're maintaining an unfocused gaze, is there any appreciation of beauty? What is it that appreciates the beauty? The eyes or the mind? It's the mind. It's so obvious. When you really do open awareness and you maintain a focused gaze, there are no more hills, no more clouds, no more nice textures. It's just a patch of colors. Nothing to admire. Nothing beautiful there. Just a patch of colors. And when you focus also, you focus on one thing to another. You see the hills, the shape is like that, and then one layer after another, and then you see the clouds, the colors, and then the trees, different textures. And then you piece everything together and you make a story and say, wow, so beautiful. That's the mind doing it. And when you say it's beautiful, you create a story, then the mind feels nice and pleasant. But the eye doesn't have any pleasant feelings. See, color is color only. Sound is just sound. It's just the mind that reacts to the sound. Whether it's a sound you like or you don't like, then the mind will have the feeling of either pleasure or displeasure. That this feeling, this phrase, body in body, feelings in feelings, mental states in mental states, dhammas in dhammas, it sounds a bit strange in English, but actually what it means, it's just a Pali expression which is translated literally into English that way. But what it actually means is that you observe the body or anything connected with the body, as a body. Feelings are just feelings. Mental states are just mental states. Dhammas are just dhammas. They are not mine, nor me, nor myself. Sensations are just sensations. Sounds are just sounds. Colors are just colors. Nothing to do with me. Mental states are just mental states. They are also not me, nor mine, nor myself. They are products of causes and conditions. That's what is meant by contemplating body in body, feelings in feelings, mental states in mental states, dhammas in dhammas. You look at them not as I or mine or me, not myself, but just phenomena. Body is body, is not feeling. Feelings are feelings, they are not the body. Feelings are not mental states, feelings are feelings. Mental states are different types of mental states like whether the mind is accompanied by greed or not accompanied by greed, whether it's accompanied by hatred or not accompanied by hatred, liking or disliking, whether it's composed or not composed, whether it's scattered or collected, this sort of mental states. And in the course of your open awareness meditation, you would have seen all these things. You can see all these things. You don't have to go and analyze them. Oh, this is feeling, this is what. But you already know them. And you can see them as things that come and go. You can see them as 
products of causes and conditions. These are what the four Satipatthanas are, and by doing open awareness, you are actually doing everything. Dhammas are those categories that were discussed by the Buddha. The Buddha categorized all these phenomena into different categories, like for example, the hindrances, the five hindrances, sensual desire, and then you have a sloth and topper, then you have restlessness, then you have remorse, and then you have doubt. All these things are also mental states, which were categorized by the Buddha as the five hindrances. And in the course of your practice, you also notice them. As I said, when your mind is composed, then you incline your mind to verify the three characteristics in these things. All these mental states, all these dhammas are actually in the subject. The subject is the one that feels drowsy. The subject is the one that desires sense pleasures. The subject is the one that has doubts. The subject is the one that has mindfulness. The subject is the one that has composure. The subject is the one that has tranquility, rapture, equanimity. These are all happening in the subject, not in the object. That's why the subject is so important. All these things are happening inside, not outside. These are the four establishments of mindfulness. Next one is composure. Right composure is samasamadhi. When I was doing the Samatha Vipassana Sutta Study with Meditation Workshop, I did a lot of research on this. Even before this, when I was doing the Satipatthana Sutta Study with Meditation Workshop, there was a time when I discovered that there were four suttas which defined right composure as one placement of mind supported by the seven factors of the noble path. And there are also four suttas which define right composure or right samadhi as the four jhanas. It's like a stalemate. One says it's one placement of the mind and the other one says the four jhanas. To strike a compromise, if it is one placement of mind, that one placement of mind must be one of the jhanas. And if it is the jhana, then the jhana must be supported by the other seven factors of the noble evil path. Because one can still attain the Visuddhimagga sort of absorption jhana without having any of the other factors. You could do a non-Buddhist practice, you just concentrate on something, on a candle flame, and then you get absorbed in it. That's jhana. It's absorption. You can get absorbed reading a very, very interesting novel. You can get absorbed in your computer when you are very intently doing something on a project. That is also absorption. Absorption means you are totally immersed in what you are doing and you are oblivious of everything else. There is one guy from Taiping who has this ability to watch TV until he cannot hear anything. The wife calls him also cannot hear. This TV absorption, TV jana. <laughs> this one has no support of the seven factors of the noble path. This is not right samadhi. It is samadhi. It's absorption, but not the right samadhi. <laughs> one placement of mind means you are able to place the mind where you want to without being distracted by thoughts, feelings and perceptions. And that one placement of mind, in order to qualify as 
right samadhi must also be supported by the other seven factors and also be at the jhanic level. What is the jhanic level? Here I'm going to talk about the four jhanas. The first jhana, according to the suttas, has several factors. The first thing is that it's persecuted from sensual desires. You'll see whether you have attained this first factor or not. When your mind is composed, you're doing open awareness, and you're aware of things coming and going, and there are very few thoughts. Thoughts are spaced far apart. At that time, when there are no thoughts, I mean, in a gap in between one thought and another, are there any desires for pleasures of the senses? None, right? You are just busy watching the five senses. There are no desire for any sensual pleasure. Okay, this is the first factor. The second is that it's secluded from unwholesome states, in the sense that there is no greed or hatred at that time. Although that could be delusion. If you are doing pure samatha open awareness, which means to say you just ignore, you don't acknowledge, you just touch and go. You just anchor your mind in the five senses in order to keep away all this obsessive and compulsive thinking. At that time, there's no greed and there's no hatred, no anger, no aversion. It is secluded from unwholesome states. Initially, you still need to have initial application and sustained application. Initial application in the sense that you need to put effort to keep your mind anchored to the sense objects. Not only do you need to continually bring it back to the sense objects whenever it runs off, but you have to maintain it and make sure that it stays there. This is initial and sustained application of effort of the mind. This is Vitaka Vichara. This also happens in the course of a meditation and you can experience it. Then, at that point of time, you begin to feel very contented and interested in what you are doing. Initially, it might be bored sitting there watching same old objects, same old sounds, same old sensations. It's boring to you. But when you get into this state, there's no more boredom. There's intense interest in just keeping track of what's happening to the senses. And it's very peaceful and calm and you're contented and happy. Happiness in the sense of being contented with what's happening, not wanting anything else more than what is happening. These are the factors of the first jhana. You have to see whether your own experience tallies with this, whether you have touched this or not, whether you've experienced this or not. It's up to you to decide. Then we go on to the second jhana. The second jhana doesn't have initial and sustained application or thought, which means to say it's a thought-free state. No more thoughts. No thoughts even about practice. How do I maintain my composure? How do I make sure that my mind doesn't run away? How do I make sure that there's enough energy and I don't slack? 
Uh, these are also thoughts that may go on in the first jhana. But these are thoughts not about sense pleasures. These are thoughts about practice. This will still be there in the first jhana. But second jhana, no thoughts at all, and the mind is on auto mode. It's able to be mindful automatically of things coming and going. Initially, you have to direct your mind. Because I say, if there's an obvious sound, a regular, very prominent sound, you don't hold on to it. You ask yourself, what else can the mind be aware of? Initially, you need to direct the mind. Besides this, what can the mind be aware of? Hearing something else, touch sensation somewhere, color somewhere. You need to do that initially. But when you come to this stage, no need. It's all on auto mode. The mind will move freely by itself. This is a time when it's really, truly free and easy. Touch and go. It goes by itself. No directed awareness required. At this time also, the mind becomes very clear. It's crystal clear, very alert and clear. And it becomes one in a sense, perhaps. One way of experiencing this state is you are not going to the objects anymore. The objects are coming to you. Like what I said this morning. It's like you are placing your attention in one place where you think the mind is and the objects are coming to the mind rather than you going up to the objects. There is no sense of location anymore. That is the oneness of the mind. This time also there is still interest and happiness. But previously it was Interest and happiness born of seclusion. Seclusion from what? Seclusion from the sense desires. This one is born out of composure. Because there is samadhi, the body feels very firm and yet very comfortable and light and easy. Because of this composure, there is deep interest and happiness in what you are doing. So this is the second jhana. The third jhana has no more rapture. Now it becomes very equanimous. In the first and the second jhana, there was deep interest. There might be some uh, rapture. But here, no more rapture. And the mind is equanimous. It doesn't crave for pleasant feelings anymore. It's equanimous, no more rapture, whatever comes is okay, it's able to accept anything. At this point of time, it is truly no distractions at all. Whatever happens will not disrupt your composure. And here, you are mindful and clearly aware. Is it strange that this mentioned only at the third jhana, because you need to be mindful and clearly aware right from the very beginning. But it's because at the third jhana, it becomes very prominent. That is why it is mentioned here. There is no more physical pleasure. In the previous first and second jhana, there was a lot of rapture as well as physical comfort. But here, there is no more. I mean, physical comfort has become equanimous. And then now there is mental happiness. Happiness in the sense of being contented with what is happening. And finally, the fourth jhana has this factor of it's totally neutral, totally equanimous, 
no mental or physical happiness anymore. And the mindfulness also has reached its epitome because it is purified by equanimity. These are the four jhanas. When one has attained that one placement of mind and supported by the seven factors of the noble path, it should be also one of these jhanas. Usually it's the first or the second. Now in the suttas, the development of the noble path is usually described as a linear one, which means to say that you start off with Panya, leading on to Sila, leading on to Samadhi. You start off with intellectual understanding, goes on to morality, goes on to composure. Here you will see, you start off with right view, intellectual understanding, and then it will lead you to have right thoughts, because you understand intellectually, or you believe in the law of karma, the law of causality, then that will influence your thought, you are more careful of how you think, and also influence your speech and action. With the right view, it will influence your thought, your thought will influence your speech, your speech will influence your action, your action will influence your livelihood, and then your livelihood will influence right effort, right effort will influence your mindfulness, and then your mindfulness will lead to samadhi. And this samadhi, you will go to right knowledge. Right knowledge here is another form of right view, but here instead of showing only eight factors of the path, ten are shown. Instead of going back to right view, it goes to right knowledge, and then finally to right liberation. These are what we call the ten rightness. All starts with right. Right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right composure, right knowledge, and right liberation. If we start off with wrong view, then everything becomes wrong. You start off with wrong view, then you get wrong thought, wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood, wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, wrong samadhi, wrong knowledge, and wrong liberation. But I think that is more than that. It's more complicated than just such a linear thing. I think it has many, what you call, feedback loops within itself. My understanding is more complicated, is not linear, is complex development of the noble path. But you start also with right view. You start with right view. And that sort of right view is information and intelligence. Getting the right information and having the intelligence to accept and believe them. This right view will influence the right effort and right mindfulness. This is a feedback loop by itself because... Even though you listen to Dhamma talks, you study the Dhamma books, and you have this right view in mind, you must remember this right view. And then you must put in the effort to apply this right view. You have to do this, because even though you have this intellectual knowledge, this learning about right view, if you cannot remember, how are you going to put it in practice? Even if you remember, but you don't put in the effort to apply, also cannot. These three 
are called the executives of the noble evil path. It is thus called in this uh, Majjhima Nikaya Mahatattarisika Sutta, the great forty. And he says, these three are the executives of the noble evil path. When these three are working, only will the rest follow. You must have the right view, and you must have right mindfulness, and you have the right effort. Then only this will lead to the morality part, which is right thought, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. This is also another feedback loop by itself. They will influence one another. For most Buddhists who don't meditate, that's what they do. Just go around here. They have the right view. They remember to put it into practice. They put the effort to practice it and then they will influence their morality. And they keep on doing this until one fine day. Then perhaps they are ready to do meditation. Then only they will start to develop composure through right mindfulness. Mindfulness leads to right composure. And uh, this right composure when it happens, then it will reinforce the right mindfulness. The mindfulness and the composure, they actually reinforce one another. Then the proximate cause of composure is mindfulness. When there is composure, the mindfulness will also increase. These two will consolidate one another until they are quite matured, then it will lead to experiential right view, which is intuitive wisdom into the true nature of reality. When you have this experiential right view, it will update what you knew intellectually. Because what you knew intellectually is one thing. When you actually experience it, you'll find that it is not really the same. It is quite different. You hear about Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta intellectually, but when you really experience it, it's something else not exactly like what you thought it was. Then you update the initial right view that you have. And so this one will go on. These three feedback loops will go on. You have to do it again and again. You go in and retreat. You recharge. You go out. You discharge. Then come back again. You recharge. Keep on doing this now. Again and again and again. One fine day, it doesn't matter where you are. It could be in a retreat or it could be in your daily life. Then you begin to become wary of the five aggregates. When you become weary of the five aggregates, you see that it's really no point feeding the five aggregates because you're just going around in circles. You are the victim of causes and conditions and there's no end to it. Then you become weary of it. When you become weary of it, then you become detached. And this detachment, when you really seen enough, the weariness is so strong, the detachment is so powerful, then it will lead to right liberation. This is right liberation. When you look in the suttas, that's what the suttas say. The knowledge and vision of things as they really are, or as they have occurred, will lead to weariness. And weariness will lead to detachment and detachment will lead to liberation. The steps are just a few steps, but the preliminary steps have to be done many, many times again and again before it gets enough momentum to be able to get out. 
the Buddhist path is making use of the six senses, making use of the five aggregates, looking at them rather, in order to be sick of them. That is the whole purpose. To be sick and wearied of them so that you will let go and go beyond it. Because we are all limited by our attachment to the senses. Our mind is limited by our attachment to the senses. The Buddhist part is to practice in such a way that you get thoroughly fed up with the six senses, five aggregates, so that you can go beyond them. That's what the path is all about. And uh, of course, you don't have to be so ambitious or put a deadline or target on when you want to achieve it because it's all a product of causes and conditions. You never know. You just keep on doing, doing one fine day, it will happen. Whether in this lifetime or in a future lifetime. Tomorrow we will still have our guided meditation in the morning. But after that, there will be a feedback session immediately after that. You please tell us a couple of things. Have you worked out many minutes per person? 1.5 minutes. <laughs> you have ample time to prepare for 1.5 minutes. This is interesting. Winston Churchill once says that if I were to give you a talk unprepared, a speech unprepared, I could go on for one hour. But if you want me to prepare a speech for 15 minutes, I will take a long time to prepare first before I can speak. I'm giving you ample time to prepare what you have to say to go in within 1.5 minutes. All you need to do, number one, your Dhamma background in brief. Dhamma background means how you got into contact with Buddhism and what you have been practicing in terms of meditation. Focus awareness or open awareness, how long? And then, can you follow what is being taught here or not? Simple. If you cannot, say why. If you can, say, what did you get out of it? And fourthly, how do you intend to apply in your daily life once you go back home? I don't know whether you have time, 1.5 minutes. There's comments and suggestions on teaching and schedule. Maybe you won't have time for this. Maybe you can write down in your feedback form. If you have time, then you can give comments and suggestions on teaching. But if you have comments and suggestions on how to improve the facilities here, you better write down. How to get rid of the ends, how to prevent the ends. If you have any wonderful ideas, please tell us and you will try to implement it. Enough for tonight. Any questions? Judy is always waiting to pounce on me. Bante, need a little bit more help on right thoughts. I couldn't quite catch the part where we talk about renouncing the sensual pleasures because I thought sensual pleasures itself is not wrong. It is only the craving and the attachment to it. And I tried to link what you have shared about even arahants also enjoy sensual pleasure, like for example eating, but then they don't have that attachment. Then to me, what is the problem with sensual pleasure and how do we renounce it. And when you say renounce it, to what extent are we renouncing it so that there's a practical component that we can then act on? You know, when you look at the gradual training, the second step of the gradual training is restraint of the senses. Having seen an object with the eye, one does not grasp every signs and features. That is a tall order for a layperson. When you go to the mall, 
What do you do with your eyes? You go window shopping and look around. That's already grasping at the signs and features. As a layperson, how are you going to practice sense restraint? If you don't grasp at the signs and features, you can't do anything. You have to practice according to what you can, within the limits of what you can. And also, when you talk about renunciation, it means cutting down as much desire as you can. If you enjoy the same pleasure, but it's not attached to suffering. Because you know that it's not going to last, you enjoy it yeah, while yeah. you can. In order to enjoy it, you need the means to do so. Let's say you want to get a Mercedes, and then the maintenance cost and car itself is very expensive. You really have a very strong desire to get a Mercedes, and you have to work hard for it to get the money. If you want to go on a holiday around the world or something, it's a desire you want to enjoy. But then you need the money to be able to do so. In order to get the money, you have to go to suffering. That's why I'm saying you try to cut down as much desire as you can. Because everybody says, don't be too ambitious, enough is enough. How much is enough? It will vary from person to person. You try to cut down as much as you can. That's what I mean. Renunciation of sense pleasures applied in a worldly sense for lay people is to cut down as much as you can. Of course, as I said, by definition, lay person is one who enjoys pleasures of the senses. But don't indulge so much in them that you forget to practice mindfulness and clear awareness. Anyone else? Yes, Clarence. Thanks, Mante, for the very detailed explanation of the Noble Eightfold Path. Just maybe a comment on what Judy mentioned earlier about sense pleasures. I have a different opinion in the sense that if you do have an attachment to something, then it's fine. Then why are there precepts on like not drinking and sexual relationships, like eight precepts? Because I think there is also a cause and relationship. You don't exist alone. You impact other people as well. So when we drink, we may lead to heedlessness and impact people around us as well. That's part of karmic creation. It's not just about no attachment yourself. That's how I think about it. Then also, I just want to clarify and confirm that the jhana part of things, is it like they are distinct and discrete and in that particular order? Or the jhanas? The jhana factors. Yes. I'm putting it in the way that the sutta explains it. But these things happen at the same time. All the factors are there at the same time when the person is in jhana. Uh, I mean the first to fourth jhana, they have to occur in the linear fashion. Not necessarily so. Sometimes you can jump. Uh, in fact, there's uh, one uh, exercise in the Visuddhi Magga for those who do absorption jhana that you can actually jump from first to fourth. From fourth, you can come down to second, and then from second, you can go to first, and so forth. It's playing around with the jhana to gain skill in going in and coming out whenever you wish to. There's also some mention about like from fifth to eighth jhana, that kind of thing. Are they not important because they are not really that pervasive to be heard around? Again? You don't really hear a lot about the 5th to 8th jhana. The 5th to 8th jhanas here refer to the arupas, the formless attainments. The Buddha never referred to the formless attainments as jhana. It's only the commentaries that do so. 
For the formless attainments, the Buddha always used the word ayatana, which is base, the base of nothingness, the base of infinite consciousness, and so forth. I think the reason why the commentaries use the word jhana for them is that these are real absorptions. The arupas are real absorptions. But the form jhanas, the what I talked about just now, they are not absorptions. Although the Visuddhi Magga describes them or defines them as absorptions, when you look at the suttas, they are not absorptions. Absorptions only occur in the arupas, in the ayatanas. The reason why the commentaries use the word jhana for both is that to them, both are absorptions. That's why you extend it from the fourth to the eighth jhana. But you never hear fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth jhana in the suttas. And last question, Bhante. You mentioned about the right knowledge and right liberation. Just curious, is there wrong versions? Wrong liberation in the sense that you think you're liberated, but you're not. Wrong knowledge in the sense that you think you know the truth, but it's not really the truth. It's all due to wrong view. Because how you perceive things will influence your knowledge. Okay, thanks, Mante. Okay.